0: We've had a request. Uh, It's Jared's birthday. Jared, where are you going? There he is. Jared, somebody wants to sing to you, or do you want to sing to yourself? No, okay. You want? Well, we already had. There you are. Come on up. And what would you like Jared to do? Just stand there awkwardly. Do you want? There's no hiding, Jared. Yeah, he's. There's nowhere to hide. Should he come stand up here so he can sing? What would you like him to do? This is your world. We just live in it. <laughs> it's up to him. It's his birthday. It's up to him. <laughs> it's his birthday. Wow! I bet his wife doesn't say that. His w- okay. Well, let his wife pick. Okay. If he want whatever. All right. We're ready when you are. Then. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday dear Jared, happy birthday to you. All right, very good, 23 years old today, so he's old, I know, I know, before long you'll need a hemorrhoid pillow or something, so, all right, now that we got the preliminaries out of the way, let's dive right in. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. We've been talking about the area of faith and what that means is we've been in this series in his image talking about what it means to be an image of God and we begin to develop this idea of what faith is because the idea of faith and the reality of faith are not one and the same because when we talk about faith, we talk about it as this abstract idea this thing out there. We hear it used a lot uh, out in the secular world because they'll talk about how, well, you know, scientists live by facts and we just live by faith. We have blind faith. Meaning that we just have no evidence for anything we believe. And that's not, absolutely not true. Our faith is not blind. It's based on facts just like anything else. The problem is, is when you get in the area of the supernatural, do you realize you can't put the supernatural into a lab and test it? Hard for science to deal with that. You also can't put love into a lab and test it. Can't put any feelings. You can't put anger. You can't, you, anything like that. You can't put thoughts into a lab and test it. So, the idea here of what faith is has been given to us by culture, but it's not a reality of what it is. Now, we're going to start in John chapter 15, and we're going to go through just kind of a rehash here for a minute. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. You are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, Jesus is sitting here getting ready to go to the cross. As I told you, the book of John covers approximately a 19-day span of Jesus' life. So we're kind of getting the last hoorah, getting everything laid out. And as he's getting ready to go, he knows what he's about to face, and he's telling his disciples something very, very specific. You abide in me. I'll abide in you. Do you guys realize what that probably sounded like to a Jewish person? Because where did God abide? In the temple. He stayed in the temple. That was where the presence of God was, and one man got to interact with him. Now there were times where the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and then he would lift. We'd see it with the prophets, we'd see it sometimes with the kings, just depending on what was going on. You would see things such as that, but but for him to just talk to these average guys, and do you realize this is likely not just the twelve sitting around in a circle? See, that's another misnomer is that Jesus only had twelve disciples. He had thousands of disciples, he had twelve apostles. But he had thousands of disciples. And as he's saying this, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit and my father will be glorified. It takes faith for you and I to believe that. Because this means we alter the course of our life from what we want to what he wants. It takes some trust. It takes some belief. It takes something so drastic Compared to where the direction of this world is, do you realize that everything that God has laid out in one way or another is contrary to the ways of the world? Think about it. He says, Given, it'll be given. He says, Trust me. Don't worry about what you lead, don't worry about where you go, don't worry about where you wear. Just trust me. That's not easy. When he talks about healing and he says that by my stripes you are healed, and we see a miracle after miracle, then we see the apostles' miracle after miracle, and what does he say? Trust me. And every person that came to him, came to him with this amount of trust that this is the Messiah, and when Messiah comes, he will heal. He was laying out new things for people to believe, to trust. He was flipping it on his head. The problem that you and I have is we are so removed from the days of Jesus from the days of the miraculous from the days of the supernatural that we've kind of forgotten and because we lack nothing and we have everything we do not have to live by faith now that's heavy but it is true we have seen in years past supernatural things happen miracles take place I had a friend of mine in fact he'll be here in May he's gonna preach in May he's gonna be coming through the area but he was over, I'm going to say Pakistan, India, I don't know where he was, some country, and he was praying for a blind woman, had no pupil. As he was praying for her, he watched the pupil form in her eye. He watched it happen. Why don't we see that? We don't need to see it. We've got every remedy in the book. We don't need anything else. See, that's the problem. To abide means fully dependent upon the vine. The branch cannot live on its own, but yet it tries. The moment it's disconnected from the vine, it no longer exists. It will produce no fruit. It will eventually wither up and it will die. And then it'll get swept up, taken off, burned, whatever. And this is the problem we have in the church today because we want this idea of God. We just don't want God. We don't want that that God who is going to direct our steps and our paths and our words and everything we do. We've never once told our kids that you need to pray to God and see what he wants you to do as a career. That's not what we do. What do we push our children to? To have greater things than what we had. To be able to make more money, to not go through some of the struggles perhaps that we did. I mean, my parents, like when I was growing up, grew up broke because my dad had lost his job and then he tried to start this business and it took years for it to take off. And because they adopted a a little one when when I was 16 years old, she grew up in a completely different household than I did because finally things had clicked and were starting to go and it was working. And then when my children went over there and they were allowed, they were given gifts, just showered unbelievably, eat what you want, sleep when you want, do what you want. And I had to explain to them that those are not the same people that raised me. (laughs) Something transitioned. But their goal, just like most parents, is I want you to be able to do something more than what we did. I don't want you to struggle. Therefore, we make it easy on our kids and they don't experience that hurt, that pain, that struggle. But what we've done, unconsciously, is we've removed God from the equation. And that's a problem. We've removed God from the equation of our own lives. We're waiting for God to do something and then we'll believe it's happening. We're waiting for God to heal somebody, then we'll believe in healing. We're waiting for God to provide the finances, then we'll believe that He does it. Seeing to believe versus believing to see. Everything that is done through God is done through faith. We see that in Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. Do you realize that faith is substance? In a sense, it's material, believable, tangible. Because at the moment that you have trust God, you believe it and you're waiting to see it. These are tough words sometimes, but we got to hear them. Because the problem is, is we're waiting for God to do something, and then we'll jump on board. What if God said, I've done everything, I'm waiting for you to get into the game. Because in order to produce fruit, we must abide in the vine. And I feel like much of the church is not doing that because we've got this idea of God that we've created in our own image And we don't want him to direct us. We just kind of want him along We want to talk Christian. We want to sound Christian. We live by a moral ethic a code if you will that we won't do certain things and we will do other things and we will be generous, but not too generous We'll give our time, but not too much of our time. We won't sacrifice everything, but we'll sacrifice some We'll be super nice. We won't cuss when we hit our thumb with a hammer or a bad golf shot, or whatever it is that, whatever floats your boat there, will do certain things. But to truly live a life fully devoted to God, we don't want that because that requires us to give up everything. Faith is the substance of things that are hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen, and by it being faith, the elders obtained a good testimony, good testimony to who? To God. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that which things which were not seen or things to which are seen were not made of things which are visible it's by faith that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks and it was by faith that Enoch was taken away, that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently. Seek Him. Do you realize that we want the rewards without the diligence? What does it mean to be diligent? It means get after it. Man, every day, diligently seeking the Lord. But we want His benefits, we just don't want Him. Life has been too easy for us here, and because of that, we don't need faith. You see, He said that those who come to Him must believe that he is before they see, believe to see. So as we begin to break this down, and we look at this, we've got to see exactly how we do these things. Because all of this is great. It's a theory perfect. I can, I can think about this, whatever. But it's a matter of doing certain things. So let's go here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man, is being renewed day by day. So then we understand that there is two us's. More than one. Because there's this spiritual man that has been recreated in the image of God. And therein lies the presence of the Holy Ghost. And that presence affects the outer man, which is ultimately going to die. But where does all of our attention lie? On this one. Feed me, sleep me, scratch me. All of the things. It completely consumes it. I want to be entertained. I want to be loved. I want this. I want that. We never stop to ask, like, what does the inner inner man want? When the inner man begins to take over the outer man, guess what? You'll start to get to that point where you don't know where God stops, and you start. You'll be so interwoven. You've heard stories about certain men. And a lot of people say, well, these men were just gifted. Guys like Smith Wigglesworth, John Lake, Kenneth hagen We were just down there at the, the Hagin campus, you know, all week. All of these great men of God, and they all had one thing in common. It was not that they were more anointed than you and I. It's not that they were more gifted than you and I, because many of them weren't even very good speakers. It was the fact that they caught the fact that we must abide in Him. If you don't know anything about Smith Wigglesworth, he wouldn't allow a newspaper into his home because he didn't want that trash. He called it fake news back before Trump coined it. Literally, I mean, Lester Summerall showed up at his house the first time to go in there and had a newspaper on his arm. And he literally said, you leave that trash out in the bushes. Wouldn't want anything. And he said, I never go, I never pray more than 10 minutes. I never go 10 minutes without praying. And before every meal, he would sit down and they'd start to eat. And he would read the word and he would pray with whoever was sitting there eating with him. And they would begin to eat. And then he'd stop again and they'd read some more of the word. Pretty extreme. But he also walked in some power that you and I have never experienced. We've never seen. But we want that. We just don't want the effort. I mean, every football player wants to run a 4-4-40. They just don't want to take the practice time to do it. Every basketball player wants to dunk. But they don't want to do what's required to get there. This is where we are in Christianity because we have it so easy here. We have not required God for our necessities. Therefore, we don't require God to live and move and have our being. So we do not lose heart even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day, day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more, exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Who is he talking to? He's making a distinction. We look at what? Who's we? He's writing to a group of believers. He's not writing to a group of unbelievers. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's telling them, we, as in you and I, the brethren of the body of Christ, we don't look at these temporal things which are all going to go away. We look at the eternal things, the things which are not seen. You know, the evidence of the things that are not seen. So we began to do something different, but how do we do it? Well, it comes down to what James says. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, he goes away, and he forgets immediately what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Another way to say that is that this person abides in him, and he reads the word, and he does what God said. Because we have lost sight of the fact that this isn't a book. these are the words. Of God that has been held together for you and I over time so that we can see the very nature of God the very will of God the love of God we cannot experience anything about God without some sort of a basis and this is the words of God so to be a doer of the word we have to know what the word says well how does one become a doer of the word they read it bear with me and then they do it it's very complicated they read it And then they do it they act on what it says they're moved to action by the words of god if god stood up here today shows up walks in the room jesus himself said hey i need something today here's what i want you to do when you go home okay forget your nap can you do that for me i know some of you all disappointed my wife says no she'd probably tell jesus that too i believe it (laughs) but here's what i want i want you to all go talk to a friend or a neighbor specifically about the gospel. Don't talk about sports. Don't talk about work. Don't talk about family. I want you to go there intently for no other reason. I want you to just present the gospel to them. Would you do that for me today? Coming from Jesus, every one of us would be like, yes, Lord. And the problem is that that's what he said, minus the nap part. He's cool with naps. He took them himself, so we know he's good. But we don't do it. He said that if if he showed up today and he said, listen, when you guys leave and you're going to go to the grocery store this week or you're going to go somewhere and you're going to see somebody banged up, sick, whatever, I want you to take that life that's inside you that I gave you and I want you to go put your hands on them and I want you to declare that they are healed and made whole. Will you do that for me and then report back to me? Every one of us would be like, absolutely, Jesus told me to do it. You know what else happened? He told us to do it. He's just not here. That's the problem. It's the same thing. The way that we act would be the same thing as if we told our children, I want you to go clean your bedroom. And they go away for an hour. And they come back and they say, is the room clean? No. But here's what I did. I got online and I read a manual on how to clean your room. And all the steps you should take and how you organize and everything. And it was really, really good. But you didn't clean it No, but now I know how to do it. Okay, but you didn't do it. That is literally what we are doing today. I know that's silly, but but that's literally what we're doing today. We're spending so much time reading and learning and growing, and we're spending very little time actually doing, doing the words of God. You see. the woman with the issue of blood was moved to action because of the words of God, the prophecy of Micah. Noah was moved to action by God's words. Hey, there's a flood coming. You should build a boat. He didn't sit around and say, okay, well, let me read up on this boat building business and how to do this. And maybe I'll download a manual on how to do it. And I bet you, I bet you there's a devotional about, you know, build a boat in 120 years. He didn't do that. We told Abraham to go, Abraham's like, Okay. He was moved to action by God's word. The problem is we're not. The church today, in many ways, is not. Now, you're going to hear about this man next week, but they've got a man, I'm going to share, save the story for them, but that was delivered in their ministry and is out actively building churches throughout all of El Salvador. Just the moment he got born again, that's all you know. What's he doing? The words of God. He is one of the few that will get up there and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. The rest of us, well, you're done. Because we lived our lives for us and not for him. You see, we have a mental assent to the promises of God, but it's not really in our heart. We, we, We leave it up here. We believe it. We know God's there, but it's not really here. And so I showed you this last week, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. And then jump down to verse 7. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. And as I told you guys, we see this idea of the helmet of salvation. The moment that we are born again... We should put on this armor because it is protecting our soul. Our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. We have our recreated spirit, but our mind is not renewed. Our mind likes to play games. Our mind, according to this, is the method of which the enemy comes in to attack us, giving us thoughts and things like that to try to sway us. So the helmet of salvation protects us from that, but the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Then we went to Romans chapter 10. Verse 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you hear, where do things go? It goes into your mind. You're hearing things right now. Maybe some lights are turning on for you, like, "Mm, yeah, that's right, that's good. Maybe you're sitting like, no, I don't like that. I don't want any more of that. Whatever it is, that's where it goes. Faith or trust comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But how do you know that you're actually living by the words of God? Because you will do them. He said to have faith in God. That's what he told his disciples. When Peter said, come, you know, Jesus, if that's you, let me come, he says, come. And he goes he's walking on water until he realizes he shouldn't be walking on water. And the thing that Jesus said is to have faith in God. Why did you doubt? Our faith is not simply into things. It is the substance of what we believe. Our faith is in God. Everything that goes with that is ancillary to the character of God. Our faith is in Him, not in healing. Our faith is in Him, not simply in salvation. Our faith is in Him, not in our resources. We know that our faith is in God, and that at the end of the day, when this is all over, I will spend eternity with Him and not have to worry about anything. It will not matter how much money I made. It will not matter how big a house I've got, how many cars I've will Nothing else will matter if I don't get this right. I have the opportunity right now on this earth to live my life for God, and I want to honor Him in that to the best of my ability. But when it's all said and done, the things that I got right and the things that I got wrong are going to end up in the same place. It won't matter. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, this right here, the Word of God is what separates Your thoughts from God's thought. It separates your soul and your spirit. That means that everything that goes into your mind must be filtered through the Word of God. Everything. It is the only thing that can truly discern good from evil, right from wrong. It's the only thing. It is our foundation and our basis. But the problem is these are the words of God and we act like they're not. We act like they're just another book. We act like they're just simply something that we can take from and glean from. Like, oh yeah, that's good. I like that part. Oh, that sounds good. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I love that part. But we don't live like it. We are fully persuaded that God might be able. Fully persuaded that he might be. But the moment we become fully persuaded that he is who he says he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, our lives transform. We find our usefulness. We find where our faith goes. Now I want to show you some examples of this. Because the problem is, is that we want everything right now. But the promises of God are not always as immediate as we would like them. In Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Says therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be to uh, be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law but also to those who are the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom believed he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope. In hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Now, stop. Where was his faith? Not in the promise, in the promise maker. Against all hope, against all norms. Forgetting the fact that his body was as good as dead. His wife's body was as good as dead. They can't produce offspring. Faith in God. Verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. Giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Fully convinced that he who promised would perform. His faith was not in the promise. It was in God. And what happened as a result? It was accounted to righteousness. Here's the problem. From the moment that the promise happened to the moment of the birth of Isaac was 25 years. Let me say that again. You see, he was 75 years old when God promised. He was 100 when Sarah gave birth to the promised child and yet never wavered in 25 years. Do you realize that if we pray for something and we don't have an answer in 25 minutes, I guess it's not God's will. We've got every excuse in the book. 25 years. Now when we read it, it's like you went on this page, and you flipped to that page, and the baby's born. That must be fast. 25 years never doubting God's promise. And because of that, it was accounted to him to righteousness. Where was his faith? In God. Sitting there, 75. You're going to do what? We haven't had kids yet. What makes you think we can now? We're old. But God promised. So therefore he believed it. It's amazing of how much we have faith in our salvation and yet we have little evidence of it. We have no problem accepting that. Do you know why? Because we're not faced with eternity on a daily basis. We're not staring death in the face. Do you know as a pastor, i am doing this for 20 some years now, that how many people try to build their faith the moment they're diagnosed with cancer? That's not the time. That's the same equivalent as like, okay, the NFL combines today, and I want to run a 4440. I probably should have trained a few months ago, but I'm just gonna wing it. It's not how that works. Because we're building up our inner man. And the moment it doesn't happen the way we think it should, we're like, oh, I guess this stuff doesn't work. You see, we rush the process, we don't trust the process. You say that again, we rush the process. We don't trust the process. Twenty-five years. You and I would have moved on. We said, well, I guess I miss God. wasn't meant to be. I want to show you one more out of the book of Jeremiah. Because we're going into a time in our nation that's going to be very interesting over the next several months. It's an election year. And I don't often get very political, and I don't intend to here. But you're going to hear everything from every prophet and nonsensical idea floating around out there. You need to have discernment. So we're going to look in the book of Jeremiah here for a little bit, but let me set this up. Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of the Babylonian captivity. He stayed in Jerusalem while all the captives were over there. Ezekiel was in Jerusalem. He was here. And so he's doing his thing, and there was a reason that they were in captivity for 70 years. And the reason was is they never kept the land covenants. They were supposed to let the land rest every seventh year. They'd never done it for 490 years. Therefore, God's judgment on their disobedience was 70 years in captivity. Okay? God fulfills his promises. If you do what I say, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you will be cursed. There will be judgment on you. They accepted the terms. Therefore, the terms are. God is always faithful to his promise. He promised the the judgments just as much as he did the blessings. And so when you get into chapter 26 of Jeremiah, you've got this sermon where Jeremiah is going to announce the destruction of the temple and the nation if they don't repent. They're going to come in, they're going to wipe everything out. Now, that obviously goes over real well because people love to hear all the negativity. But to the priests and the prophets, they called it a false prophecy. They they wanted to execute him because he's treasonous. Because nobody would destroy the temple of God. It's the temple of God. And so he manages to not be killed. Now most of the prophets, when they brought the good news and it is the bad news, as they were executed, and it talks about that in various places. They go and tell him, you need to repent. Yeah, we don't like that. We'll just kill you. Good times. So Jeremiah is going to give a message at the beginning of the reign of a king, Zedekiah, in chapter 27. And so there's going to be all these emissaries from surrounding nations and are, are going to be in Jerusalem. They're plotting a revolt on the nation of Babylon because they're going to get their freedom back. And Jeremiah tells them, like, no, these are the words of the Lord. We are in captivity for a reason. I'm giving you a quick synopsis of this. And so what he does is he makes a yoke, and he wears one, and he sends one back, and everybody strapped one on there, on themselves. And he instructs the nations that they must admit that Nebuchadnezzar's yoke is God's will. And if they will submit to it, then they will be safe. And they will survive. And he takes this wooden yoke and he puts it on himself to make a point. It's dramatic symbolism. It's weird. Um, There's several, I mean, New and Old Testament of weird things like that. It seems a little excessive, but whatever. So then he talks to the priests and all the people and he warns them to not believe. Now this is chapter 26. They They'd not believe certain prophets who predict the temple accoutrements are going to be carried off by Nebuchadnezzar and then returned. Don't believe those prophets that tell you these things, to tell you the things that you want to hear. Don't believe them. Now let's jump into chapter 28. So that was 27, 26, 27. I'm just giving you a quick synopsis. Now we're going to start in 28. And I want you to see this. So he gets done with all of this. The yokes are made. He tells them, don't believe those prophets tell you this is all going to be over soon. Okay? Verse 28. Or chapter 28, verse 1. And it happened in the same year. At the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Doesn't that sound wonderful? If you had been taken from your nation and now we're under Babylonian rule and you were somewhat of a slave, and not exactly treated well, and you have a prophet stand up and says, in two years, you will be brought back into the land, and you will rule and you will reign, because I have broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. That sounds good. We'd all be hooping and hollering, they'd probably take up an extra offering, and we'd all be throwing in there, right? That's probably what would happen. The problem is, is that Jeremiah had warned against this very thing shortly before this. He's with him, he in the presence of the priest and all the other folks around there. Now look at verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priest and in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, the Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who carried away captive from Babylon to this place. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. And as for the prophet who prophesies a peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, I sense a smidgen of sarcasm in his response. I am an expert in sarcasm, so I tend to pick it up. But first of all, he says, well, amen, the Lord do so, the Lord perform your words. But all the prophets who came before him, who brought the bad stuff, what happened to them? They were killed. They were destroyed. They didn't like it. But as for the prophet who prophesies the peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Okay? What's he saying? We'll find out in two years. Now, verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet, he goes takes a step farther, took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. And Hannah and I spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. So he doubled down. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last couple of years to the prophetic movement, you're hearing a lot of this stuff, y'all. A lot of it. These are not men that are hearing from God. At least not right now. This doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean they're out there trying to lead people astray. There's just some stuff that's going on there, okay? We have to be careful. But watch what happens. Verse 12. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Remember, he left. After Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet, Jeremiah saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord. You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beasts of the field also. This was God's will, that they would serve Nebuchadnezzar. As a result of their disobedience to their covenant, they are being judged. Verse 15, Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. So we know who was right. And that's great. So the flowery idea sounds good. It tickles our ears. It tickles our soul because nobody wants to be under any kind of bondage and nobody wants to be any kind of condemnation. We just want to be able to do whatever we want and we know that the Lord is with us. We hear those types of prophecies all the time. The prophetic movement has a black eye right now and rightfully so. I wonder a little bit if what happened during the last election wasn't a lying spirit put in the mouth of the prophets to bring correction to them. I don't know. That's my opinion. But modern prophetic movement is, is really, it's, it's one of these things where the goalpost gets moved all the time, and the things are said that they're not verifiable. It's like, thus says the Lord of hosts, that you will eat lunch today. Yeah, it's a great idea. I mean, that's where it's at. So now in chapter 29, after all of this happens, look what Jeremiah says. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the smiths had the, uh, departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, uh, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah. Whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Don't you wish it was like James and Jimmy and Leroy and anyway. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who's speaking? God speaking through the mouth of Jeremiah. And he said, I have caused you to be carried away. Verse 5. Build houses, and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminish. and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in the midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So he's saying that anything you hear contrary to what's about to be here is wrong. I did not send them, do not listen to them. And the other part he's saying, y'all get real comfy. Because if you're thinking it's going away in two years, you're not living right. It's the same concept of 88 reasons that Jesus would return in 1988 <laughs> and then 89. I think it was 2012, if I remember right. I mean, you hit enough times, you're bound to land on something. But it was one of those things that there were people who were mortgaging their house, maxing out their credit card, all of that. Why not? Live life. we got a few more days here. Let's just do this. It's going to be great. And then Jesus is going to return. That was a false prophecy. And people bought it because they have no discernment because the word of God is what separates your thoughts from the Lord's. So here he says they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. Watch this, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I thank towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Just so you know, that verse does not apply to your life unless you're in Babylonian captivity. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Now, that's a promise of God, and it's an exciting one. And if you were there, you would love every part of what he just said, except one thing. Seventy years. Seventy years. I have to wait until God moves for 70 years. Why did he prophesy 70 years prior? Why not just wait? Why not wait till years? Two? two years? Sounds a lot better. That's the difference between the Word of God and the Word of flesh. The Word of God said 70 years. Can you imagine what it's like to wait, to know, to just say, okay, we're just going to do life. We're going to get married. We're going to build houses. We're going to do all this stuff. And in 70 years, we're going to go. We try to rush the process, not trust the process. See, that's the problem. Our faith isn't in God. Our faith is in what we bring to the table. Let's look at one more, Philippians chapter 3. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. So who wrote this? This is Paul. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often. And now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. And whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. These people, the good ones, set their mind on the thing above. Where is our citizenship? In heaven. When will we see it? The end of our lives or when the Lord returns? When will that be? We don't know. But right now, what do we do? We trust God. We build the houses. We rear children. We get them married. We're doing life for the king. He says, Follow me as an example. See, that's the thing. Our faith and belief has to be in the moment that the word is given, but the fruition of it may not be for many, many years, which is crazy because. So often you hear people like, oh yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, God is, if God's good, then He'll let me in, blah, blah, blah. Why are we so confident in that? Our faith isn't in our ability, it's in God's promise. The reason we are so confident is it's not in something, it's in someone. I want to read you guys something that uh, Chad Gonzalez put out the other day, I thought was really good. It says, you were translating to God's kingdom to be sent into the world. The church, the new creation, is literally an invasion into the sense realm. You see, we have gotten it backwards. We are looking at ourselves as earthlings trying to get, to heaven, get heaven to invade earth. But we are seeing it all wrong. We are the sent ones. We are the invaders. We see ourselves as saved but not sent. Therefore, we look out from earth instead of looking into earth. We are looking at heaven from the outside in, and it must be reversed. Just as with Jesus, when we were born again, we were born from heaven and sent from heaven to invade the earth, to live among the world's realities while manifesting heaven's realities. See, it's flipping it, fully dependent that he who promised is able to perform. That's what faith is. It's not in us. It's not even in the promises. It's always in God. We'll build upon that next week. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord, that in all things, that you have promised, it's yes and amen, to him who believes. Lord, we put our trust in you, not ourselves, not the things around us, not our jobs, not our homes, not our families. Lord, all of those things can be good, but they can also be a distraction. Lord, I thank you that it's everything, is in you. Our faith and hope and trust is in you and your promises. So Lord, we thank you that every part of our life will bring glory to your name, that nothing that we do and nothing that we say does anything but point people towards you because you are good and you are worthy and you are mighty. We give you all the glory and honors in Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.